And hearing that made me forget how to laugh. I was like, am I doing it right? I'm Ben McKenzie. And welcome to Pratt Chat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. Each month we discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books with a special guest. Today we're reading Sorcery, a book about staffing issues at Unseen University. And our guest is comedian, author and Pratchett fan, Cal Wilson. Welcome back, Cal. Oh, thank you for having me back. I'm very excited. Oh, it's so good to have you back. Has it been an exciting time for you in between episodes? It has. What was what was really lovely was rereading Sorcery and going, oh, God, I'd forgotten how much I fell in love with this book. Because this was your first one. This was my first one in a bargain bin. It was like five bucks or something. I was put off by the cover because it's the really booby one. Mm. But I still, for some reason, picked it up. And, yeah, I was like, oh, man, it's so funny. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited too because I started with The Colour of Magic. So Rincewind was my first, you know, Discworld protagonist. And, I, you know, I don't miss him. It's been a long yeah. time. Yeah. So it's nice to to come back to him and and read this book. So I'll read the blurb. I'll read the blurb. Excellent. There was an eighth son of an eighth son. He was, quite naturally, a wizard. And there it should have ended. However, for reasons we'd better not go into, he had seven sons. And then he had an eighth son. A wizard squared. A source of magic. A sorcerer. This is, I like about the blurbs for the early books is that they're not necessarily funny, mm. but they sound like great fantasy yeah, adventure. Yeah. And it all begins, like it, it really begins where it says it begins, doesn't mm. it? Yeah. Because it's all, it's it's the wizard, Ipslaw the Red, standing on a beach. They never say where the beach is. Presumably it's quite, well, they intimate that it's quite far away from Ankh-Morpork because they've chased him to the ends of the earth. Mm. But you don't know really where he is. See, I was picturing Cornwall. I was picturing Cornwall. Yeah. Cold, like not pleasant. Yeah, it's like windy and you can just, it's very yeah. moody. Desolate. Big cliff. Like no one's out there with an umbrella getting a tan. Like it's. <laughs> no. <laughs> They've got their towel spread out on the pebbles. <laughs> <laughs> While like death and <laughs> this wizard are out there. Yeah. Battling it out. Yeah. And it's, and this is where we find out what the deal is with wizards not doing it. Right? Because yeah. it's it's sort of been it was hinted at in Mort. We we talked about it in our last episode. Somehow their magic was connected to that. And in this book we find out it's not a case at all. They're just not supposed to make more wizards. Would we how do we describe the difference between a wizard and a sorcerer? Well doesn't he describe it as being a it's a, a wizard squared? Yeah. So mm. it's like a wizard to the power of wizard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well and and it's sort of you get the idea that wizards use the magic that's already on the disc, they channel it. Mm. Whereas a sorcerer makes new magic and unleashes it. So it's kind of like the difference between a Freddie Mercury and a Freddie Mercury impersonator. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Freddie Mercury obviously is the sorcerer. Yes. Yeah. yeah, okay, good. Is he the eighth son of an eighth son of an eighth son? I don't know. Mm. He was just a unique individual. We've been <laughs> listening to a lot of Queen in the car. And was that just a tape that you found in the, in the glove box? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> 
I'm going to end up talking about Dungeons and Dragons a lot in this podcast. And in Dungeons and Dragons, a wizard is someone who studies and learns how to cast spells using books of lore. Whereas a sorcerer is someone who's born with the ability to cast spells. And it's usually because, you know, they have an ancestor who's a dragon or a, or a fae creature. Oh, how does that work? Yeah. Yeah. How does that work? Physically difficult. Yeah. Oh, they, dragons turn into people all the time. Although oh, I feel okay. like that's something they should disclose up front. You know? Yeah. yeah. Well, like, like just before we have kids, you should know I'm a dragon. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a part-time dragon. Yeah. 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 Not a swamp dragon though. Mm. That would, You wouldn't <laughs> want to have kids. They wouldn't produce sorcerers. Yeah. Well, they wouldn't would they? last the whole, like they'd die, wouldn't they? They'd, yeah. They'd yeah just explode. Explode, explode, explode yeah. at the moment of conception. Maybe that's, <laughs> there's a lot of single mums that used to be with dragons, swamp dragons. <laughs> It'd be difficult to explain that to the family. <laughs> Why doesn't Brian come around anymore? Well, oh, remember how I used to have two eyebrows? <laughs> on the cliff it's a climactic scene and it feels like some sort of high fantasy novel because he's this wizard and his staff and his baby son is like he will become the king of all wizards you know it's it's it feels epic mm. it really does and then i really love the um the perfect sound of the name coin as well like it's mm. such a like ipslaw the reader is quite a grand name and then coin is like just it's just a small round thing like mm. it's just a a little name for someone who's going to become so powerful. Yeah, and it's Colin with the L taken out as well. And it's also metal, oh. like a coin. So I assume it's kind of like he's a conductor that his father oh. can work through and the magic can oh. work through and the octarine stuff and how that's metal when it's not normally. So I kind yeah. of thought coin fit in nicely with yeah, that because yeah, yeah. he's being used by yeah. so many things. Yeah. yeah. Death shows up. Death's there. Mm. He's not the straight man in this conversation. He's the one cracking the jokes. Yeah. Mm. But I feel like he doesn't know that. Yeah. Like he's mm. he's one of those earnest people that is so entirely unaware that they are gloriously funny. Yeah. yeah. And he, because he, he does play it straight to begin with. Like he's not being outrageously funny. Um, but he does have that great line about the cats. Oh, yes. When Ipsla asks him, is there anything in the future worth living for? Yeah. It's so beautiful. Death thought about it. Cats, he said eventually. Cats are nice. Curse you. Many have. Said death evenly. He's just, he's been doing this a long time. It's really mm. hard to phase him. Yeah, he can't really get a rise out of death. Mm. Uh, although, the, although Ipsilon almost does, doesn't he? Which is interesting. Yeah. It talks about how he needs a good run up to get angry, and he's not angry right now, but he is annoyed. And you're like, you don't want death to be annoyed <laughs> with you. That's a bad scene. Uh, but we, we get Ipsilon's whole plan, which is that uh, he's, he's been kicked out of the university because he fell in love and wanted to have children. And that's against the law of wizards because it makes sorcerers. And uh, so he was chased away from the university. He ends up wherever he's ended up on this beach in Cornwall. <laughs> and his wife has died in childbirth um, with his eighth son. And his eighth son is the eighth son of an eighth son of an eighth son. So he's going to be a sorcerer. And he already is, in fact, a sorcerer. And his eyes are glowing with like magical power. And the interesting thing for me is death looks into his eyes and he's like, I've never done this before. This is hard. I'm like, but there's been, we know there have been sorcerers before. Did you never meet any of them? Did they not die? And and actually maybe they didn't mm. because it's sort ah. of intimated that they all left the world and not by dying necessarily, but by just Stepping away. Making mm. their own world. Um, but this is this is Ipslaw's great plan is to have a, have a son who will be a sorcerer and who will go back to the university and take it over and become the new arch-chancellor. Which is, and he wants revenge. Is it? He's he's weirdly sympathetic a little bit at the start. Ipslaw, I thought. 
Like, he seemed like a massive jerk to me throughout. And there's also that line about how he drove his other seven sons away. Mm. So I thought maybe he'd turned into a terrible person after his wife died. But it sounds like he's just been this sort of force against the, like obsessed with the university since the beginning, even though it's technically him who kind of chose to leave. So, yeah, I didn't feel sympathetic towards him at all. Like right from the start, I was like, well, he's not a, he's driven his other sons out. He's mean to his kid. Like it's, it's like one of those, I don't know. He's like one of those mums that puts their daughters in beauty pageants and the Mm. kids aren't interested, but they're like, no, no, come on, smile, dance, do you like, he's got ambitions, but he's not taking into consideration what his son wants. And I almost feel as though maybe this was his plan from the beginning. He's like, okay, I'm a wizard and I'm going to have seven sons and then an eighth son and make a sorcerer. Like it almost feels like this was his goal all along because he doesn't seem like the kind of person who gets caught up in the whimsy of love and then leaves the institution that he's so obsessed with for a woman. Like it doesn't seem to jive with his character for me, but that could be conspiracy theory. <laughs> no, no, that's fair. I guess the one bit of sympathy I had for him is that he does seem he's he's genuinely sad about what's happened to his wife, and it and there is that line where it says that he he got married and fell in love and then not necessarily, necessarily in, in that, that order. order, which is you know could be problematic, but it also maybe supports your idea that he got married in order to have children mm. and mm. then fell in love with the woman that he married, you know. But yeah, so he's look. Yeah, he is a jerk. I, w- I will not deny that <laughs> the way he treats Coin is terrible, uh, and particularly that also he's not just set him on this path, but he's going to stay with him and keep him on this path and be manipulative the whole time by putting his soul or, or essence into the staff mm. as a way of cheating death. Which sounds, I mean, do we? How clever is this? Is does it does it feel clever? Is this a clever trick to play on death? Well, I suppose so. It's getting him what he wants, isn't it? Like mm. until when it doesn't work out at the end. But, like, yeah, I feel like, well, he'd be pretty pleased with himself. Mm. Yeah. Well, and he, he definitely yeah. Yeah. Well, he clearly is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And he's got that, before he does it, he's got those lines where he's just like, I put a lot of myself into this stuff. Mm. And you're like, okay, you said that twice. Surely this is, oh, I see what you yeah. mean. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. It feels very high fantasy even for the disc world, it's not the sort of thing that happens. Yeah, on the yeah, world very yeah. Often. It's quite grandiose, isn't it? Like it's it's a big thing. It's not. Well, we t- I mean, we talked previously about how one of the things that makes the disc world feel like disc world is that it's very you know, it's about people is the big deal. And here there are people in it, but it's it's also about these big lofty ideas of mm. we shouldn't mess with things we don't understand, and it's it's not as personal. Yeah, like I don't I don't look at this and go, oh, I can see the parallels between this and a deal at a bank. You know, like yeah. I can't mm. see this. You know, like a, a CEO getting sacrificed to um, death and then going into I don't uh, like a post box or something. You know, like it does feel much more fantastical. Mm. And it's interesting too because it's like one of the few Discord where we get this sort of weird prologue that happens years before the main plot mm. that sets mm. up the main plot, and he just gets straight into it. There's no sort of like we don't even know what a sorcerer is until forty pages in. It's like nope, here's the sorcerer, here he is. This is his plan. Eight years later, he rocks up at the university. It's on. Yep. First of all, we meet the uh, Unseen University Wizards. But these aren't the university wizards that we get used to in later books. No. Mm. They're very different. They're much more like the the wizards from the first couple of books where they just all want to 
kill each other in order to ascend up the ranks. Yeah, they're a lot more uptight, aren't they? Hmm. Yeah. Like, really, the librarian's the only one that carries through, isn't he, to the other books about the university. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's a lot of wizards who get named in this book and then we never hear of them again. Mm. Which is probably for the best, considering what they get up to. (laughs) Yeah. There's some Dungeons & Dragons stuff here, too, because they talk about the levels of wizarding. There's, like, eight different levels. Oh, right, right. And in Dungeons & Dragons was the game that invented the concept that you have a character that you create and then as they have adventures, they accrue experience points and when you get enough of them, you go up to a higher level. Ah. And if you're playing a wizard, that's how you get access to the more powerful spells. You have to go up levels before you can cast more spells and more powerful spells. I mean, they're not very much like Dungeons & Dragons wizards in other ways, but they they have levels of organisation and they have all these weird complex spells that have names that are quite like Dungeons and Dragons spell names. And I'm sure that was a source of inspiration. It's like when we get to, you know, Malagri's Magical Garden, which is the big spell, that, that's a really a trope of Dungeons and Dragons. There's all these spells named after these old wizards, like Morden Canaan's or Melf's Acid Arrow is a famous one. That sounds like a craft beer. <laughs> I would drink Melf's Acid Arrow. You can probably get it at the Mended Drum. You probably can. <laughs> well, imagine if it's had a hips, hipster makeover. <laughs> Oh, it, no. <laughs> it, it, they'd probably rename it the broken drum again. It's yeah, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. You wouldn't remember when it was the broken drum. Mm. Yeah, and then the troll at the door would have to, like, grow a hipster beard and a handlebar moustache. and but it's all lichen? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, what would a troll beard be out of? But, yeah, you're right. Um, and a bun. <laughs> yeah. A troll bun. Troll bun. <laughs> uh, well, we, when we get to the university, the first wizard we meet is um it's wazy goose isn't it the guy who's yeah. going to be the new arch chancellor and he gets quite a lot of build-up for a character who is literally disintegrated mm. after about yep. four pages of description the old bait and switch though it's yeah. the old this is where you're supposed to be looking you think this is about all this all about this guy and then gone stakes are high immediately did you find it weird that they never they never say exactly what happens to him and I always thought that was going to be a plot thing where we come back and we find out that it wasn't Coin <gasps> who killed him. But then it pretty much is assumed that no, it was. See, what I thought was going to happen, and it's, I guess it's because in my heart I'm five, I was like, oh, okay, so when the book's all done and the sorcerer's come around, he's going to make everyone come back to life who's died and it's going to be all right. But that did not happen. Yeah, yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. So I didn't get upset about the death because I was like, oh, this is a temporary sort of Marvel Universe kind of death. So... And then by the end of the book, you don't care anymore. Yeah, you've forgotten because <laughs> so many lives have been yeah, lost. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, There's so much destruction. It, it is, well, you know, it's going to be the apocalypse. So it is kind of like Armageddon. There's just people being exploded and horribly destroyed in every corner of the disc world by the end of the book. But at this stage, it's just Wazy Goose. We meet Rincewind when all the weird stuff is happening around the university. That's kind of a sign yeah. that something is going to go wrong. He shows up on page 17. And it's interesting because this is... More or less a, a sequel to the first two books, but you don't really need to know what's happened. There's only a couple of things that are holdovers that you kind of need to know. I mean, he's got the luggage, but it's kind of explained. And yeah, I didn't. When I read it, and when I reread it again last night, actually, I was like, oh, I don't, I don't care where the luggage has come from. He's just got the luggage. Like, mm. yeah, and it doesn't matter why Rincewind can't do magic. Like, it's no, just no, I'm just like, oh, he's, he's just an idiot. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. He's the worst wizard ever. It's like he's below level zero, yeah. <laughs> which is great. Yeah, the thing about when he dies, everyone else just goes up a bit. Yep, yep. <laughs> so we meet him and he's your first Discworld protagonist, Cal, as well as mine. How did you find Rincewind when you first read this book? I 
liked him because I liked that idea of someone being caught up in a world that they're not equipped for, even or that he's supposed to fit in, but he just doesn't fit in. Like, but then there's also all of the other characters around him. Like, I love the librarian. Like, I just adore the librarian, and I really love death. Like, mm. I was delighted by all the characters. I guess I found him maybe slightly annoying. Like, the kind of he's a little bit like Eeyore, but like a more mm. active Eeyore kind of. I didn't love him. Like, I didn't want him to win as such, but I didn't want him to fail. Like, I didn't want him to win the girl or yeah. or anything. Like, I'm quite happy. I was quite happy for him to bumble along. And But then at the end, you know, at the end, um, if we can talk about the end now, yeah. but mm. at the end, like, that he does what's right. Like, he does, he's like, oh, God, I've got to do what's right. And he does what's right rather than run away, which is his natural yeah. inclination. Mm. It's that thing where, you know, the, the bravest person is the one who is afraid but still does the yeah. right thing. Yeah. And so he comes across that way. How about you, Liz? Because you, you famously are not a tremendous fan of the Rincewind books. See, I, I liked him. I just didn't really like the books I found him in. Because I, I think when I read them as younger, I didn't sort of understand the jokes about academics as much. I didn't enjoy the world he was within. And I found actually reading this one, I sort of headed into it with, oh, I guess we're going to get through this wizard book and then we'll get on to the good ones. And then I was very pleasantly surprised by how much I enjoyed this one and how much I'd forgotten. So, yeah, I found I found him charming because he's not set up for the things he does. But that sort of summed up really well in the bit where he's asked to go on a perilous journey. He's like, are there going to be exotic creatures? Is there going to be danger? And she's like, yes, yes. And it's kind of the moment to be a hero being like, I'm going to head into my destiny. And instead he picks up his hat and goes, very well, like, good luck finding someone to do that because it will not be me. But, yeah. yeah. He's, he's very aware of the tropes of the genre that he's in. Yes. Isn't he? Even though he's, as you say, very ill-equipped, he's like, but I know what's coming <laughs> and I don't want to be any part of it. Mm. Yeah. So I found him very interesting. But it, but he's Pratchett sort of said that he felt he he kind of run out of things to do with a character who is an out-and-out out coward and also doesn't care if people know he is. Yeah, and yeah. And I can kind of see that, you know, and I think there's a reason why he doesn't come back that many times. Um, as much as I love him, I, I can kind of see, well, where do you go next with him? And mm. maybe you've done everything you can. Because some of his stories, they feel like his part in them is pretty, not repetitive, but mm. similar. You know, he plays a very similar role in all the books that he's in. Yeah. And I guess if there's no internal conflict between I'm a coward, but I don't want anyone to know, if there's no stakes, if it's just like, oh, yeah, I'm shit scared and I don't care if you know that I'm scared. Mm. Yeah. And also there's the whole, there's this sort of tension between, you know, he doesn't want to do anything except be a wizard, but he is terrible at being a wizard yeah. and will never get better. So he can't advance in power or, or status or skill either. Yeah. So it's like, well, where does he go? <laughs> you know, what is, what is, how does Rincewin change and evolve? And, um, and I love him, but I, I kind of, when I was rereading this book, I'm like, I'm really enjoying this, but also I can see why yeah. maybe you don't write 20 books about Rincewind. You know, maybe there's only five books in him. Yeah. And we've had those five books and they were they were pretty great, but that's that's really it. Whereas, you know, someone like Vimes, he can get promoted, he can get married, he can mm. have children. He's living a life that we can see changing and evolving and his priorities change and he's got a past that sort of catches up with him and all that mm. kind of stuff that Rincewind just doesn't have. Yeah, and also mm. I suppose because he's a wizard, he can't have. There's no relationships that he can have. Like there can't be past girlfriends, or there can't be mm. pursuit of love or anything like that. The, the saddest thing I feel about leaving Rincewind behind is that the luggage doesn't get to show off again because yeah. I just love the luggage. Yeah, I love how much the luggage sort of kind of loves him, but not yeah. 
quiet like it's because it's angry and mean but it's just like I can't do it alone I gotta yeah it made me think of my old cat like it made me think of like how he was just really grumpy but he loved you but he just he'd also bite you but Mm. was just cranky and horrible but still wanted to be with you (laughs) (laughs) it does sound like the luggage yeah yeah and when we meet the luggage, like a cat, it's curled up sleeping on top of a wardrobe. Yeah. yeah. You know, which is, of course, where all luggage goes to hibernate in between uses. Yeah, there's such a nice relationship between the two of them, even though one of them isn't really even a person. Yeah. Fun note on the luggage. Ever since rereading Sorcery, I've gotten very bad luggage envy, which means I look at my own luggage, see that it doesn't have legs, and get real angry. Well, we meet them both at the start because they're aware of the magical disturbance going on and they're starting to get a bit freaked out. Rincewing goes to talk to the Bursa, Spelter, and Spelter's like, there's nothing going on. You're just imagining it. It's- Have a sherry. It'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very, very um, British thing to do. <laughs> it's just like, don't make such a fuss. Just drink some bourbon. You'll be fine. Um, not bourbon. That's not a very English thing to drink, is it? <laughs> English redneck? Mm. Yeah. Oh, because yeah. he's supposed to be cowboy, isn't he? Who? Spilter, isn't he? Like supposed Spelter? to be. No, that's Carding who's the cowboy. Is it? I, get, I kind of merged them into the same character with different personalities in my head. Oh, well, see, but one of them has a tragic end and kind of a bit of a redemption, and the other one is just a jerk the whole time. Mm. Uh, just an, a, you know, an ambitious jerk. But it's... Yeah, Spelter Spel- doesn't get a lot of personality. His kind of whole thing is that he's a bit bumbling and... Mm. Uh, but And he has the wizard's ambition, but that's not... It's almost like that's at odds with his actual personality as the book goes on. Which is a weird thing because we, we keep getting told wizards are like this, wizards are like this, wizards are like this. But then we're also told wizards are just normal people in a way. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I guess they're not normal people. And you know, we never, it's actually one thing that's never addressed in the books is whether all wizards have to be the eighth son of an eighth son. Huh. We never find that out. Like whether you have to be born a wizard or whether if you really want to, you can just go to the university and study to be a wizard. There's no talented muggles kind of. Mm. Yeah. But I can't imagine that Rincewind is the eighth son of an eighth son. It's a lot of big families. That means a mm. lot of big families. Yeah. Yeah. And there and there's wizards in other places on the disc too. But the Unseen University is very definitely like the head school and mm. focal point of wizardry for the whole world. Well, they, sorry to jump back to Spelter. They said he was tall and wiry and looked as though he'd been on a horse in previous lives and had only just avoided it in this one, which is why I oh. imagine him as sort of like a cowboyish, yeah, right. American-looking guy, but, oh, which is why I was like with the sudden draw. That's why I sort of thought the arms were like he was kind of like a Matthew McConaughey type. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting because when you said cowboy type, I immediately thought of Carding who's like the one who's like more amb- – like, he, he feels like a black hat kind of – cowboy character who like would just like be quick on the draw with a spell and oh, I mean, destroy someone in the street like an oklahoma kind of like the musical that kind of cowboy like rides around his farm sort of like just on the ed- the cusp of the it becoming part of the whole i'm just going to recount all of oklahoma if we're not careful so <laughs> but yeah that kind of musical fun with a sudden drawl cowboy yeah, right yeah that's what i imagined okay i mean i can, I can dig that that's cool um but yeah so we we meet rincewind we meet the luggage uh, and then we meet the librarian after we briefly encounter Spelter because that's where Rincewing goes next to say, hey, what's going on? In fact, actually, well, that is where we first meet him because they're in the library together, aren't they? Because mm. that's Rincewing's position now since he's come back to the university after his previous adventures, which we'll get to in another podcast. 
Uh, he's now assistant librarian because it doesn't involve doing any actual magic and mostly involves in our first scene where we meet them uh, running around trying to catch books. <laughs> and I love that. I, I've always loved magic libraries. Mm. And I, this may have been the first one that I really read about in fiction, but I feel like like books of magic were always a thing that captivated me. And I just, I love the scene in the library and all the stuff with the books because I love books. So all this stuff about ancient volumes that need to be taken care of and they love you back. I loved all that stuff. Yeah, and all the ones having to be chained and, you know, mm. they're, they're sort of flapping around up in the rafters and there's this the sex magic one that has to be kept <laughs> in a vat. Yeah. Like the, all of all of that. Um, but but it's funny, like, reading it and thinking about it now, I go, oh, like, there's all the all this parallels from Harry Potter of, like, you know, they get their magic bestiaries or whatever from Hagrid and you, you have to be able to catch the book because it's quite vicious. Like, I'm sort of going, oh, it feels like there's lots of echoes. But then is that just fantastical books as a whole like is that my my knowledge of the whole genre isn't like does everyone have magical books that bite back Mm, i don't know i i would have to think that pratchett would have to be an influence on rowling in one way or another because he's such a big figure of modern british fantasy Mm. you know and so popular that surely she's read his work and I, I've never seen her say anything about him. No. That, that might be one to look up. Yeah, the Monsters Book of Monsters and stuff, that very much has, like you are saying, mm. parallels with like the Levitation book that levitates. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. As revealed in an episode of ABC's The Hard Quiz, Rowling supplanted Pratchett in the 2000s as the number one best-selling author in the UK. While Rowling's thoughts on Soteri are unrecorded, we did find this in an interview with Pratchett in The Age from 2004 when he was asked if Rowling was a good writer. I have never actually been asked that question. With a marked change in vocal tone, he says, I think of her as a good and competent writer, a phrase that I would apply to myself as well. I am being political simply because I am painfully aware that not you, but plenty of people would love Pratchett slams Rowling as a headline. I've given what I consider a true answer. And then all the magical animals... That are just regular animals that because they live in the university now are all yeah. weird, like the bed bugs and the uh, cockroaches and the yeah. rats. I loved all that stuff. Yeah, and I also love the description of the librarian. Like it, Pratchett loves to describe him. Mm. And I love this description of him as he had a face that only a lorry tire could love. <laughs> <laughs> like it doesn't oh. even really make sense, but it's such a beautiful. It's so evocative. Yeah. If you've ever seen an orangutan, you know exactly what he means. You know? <laughs> I like the image of him like seriously going around looking after the books, calming them down, running a finger down their spines and then just sort of realizing something's up and then just burying himself in a blanket under his desk. Yeah. Like that's just there for him to do. And I love that he has had this magical thing happen to him where he's become an orangutan and he's just gone, oh, this this is much better. Like he's, I can't think of him as being previously a person. Like I feel like he's just always the librarian in that form. Yeah, and I think because that does happen during the first couple of books, and I think when we go back to read that, it's going to be feel really oh, yeah, weird. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Meeting him before he's an orangutan, that'll be really strange. When he still has life's questions pressing on him and not just wondering where the next banana is coming yeah, from. Yeah. yeah, There's another beautiful description of him as despite looking like a hairy rubber sack full of water. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's the one that always sticks in my head, actually. That and the one about like how his arms are like an angle poise lamp with a massive... like. <laughs> Like, because they're so long, they just can smack you through a wall. I, I don't know that it's entirely why I love orangutans so much, but it's clearly a big influence. Because mm. that's always, whenever I go to the zoo, that's that, those are the guys I want to go see. Mm. Yeah, they're so good. But then, yeah, they, they go and have a drink 
while they're worried that something weird and magical is going on, which means they're not there when Coin shows up at the university and bursts in during Spelter's speech uh, and demands that he is going to be the new Arch-Chancellor. And there's that whole sort of the showdown where he talks to the wizards mm. and they're all like, who is this small boy? Because he's only eight years old. Like, he's, mm. he's a tiny kid, but he's a sorcerer, so he can best them all with magic. And that scene's quite... It's intense. Mm. Like, it starts off a little bit funny and then it gets more and more. And, th- and this book does this a lot, actually, where something starts off as a fairly weird and ridiculous situation but it escalates to kind of horror and death yeah and he doesn't muck around again he's not mucking around like he comes in he wipes out a couple of people and then changes the great hall into yeah yeah just redoes the architecture like does a selling houses australia remodel on it (laughs) yeah i was really shocked actually because you're saying yeah he just kills people because he he demands to you know another powerful wizard show him some magic and this Guy casts, you know, Malachry's Malachry's magical garden, which is a very complicated spell, but it just conjures like a tiny garden, and he casually makes the garden fill the whole hall and puts all the wizards inside it, and then undoes it. And he goes, "Well, that was quite good. Now I will do some magic." <laughs> and he just points at a guy and just obliterates, just obliterates him. Yeah. And it's not even there's no explosion, there's no nothing. Yeah. He's just vanished him is the word, and and you're just like, oh, that's harsh. And and that guy. Oh, that's that's bilious. We, I don't know that we'll bother using names for most yeah. of these wizards because yeah. <laughs> most of them die. Um, and they certainly never come back. Is bilious the one who it says, unfortunately, mm. is the one who thinks he can speak to children? Yeah, yeah. Because we've all met people like that, yeah. haven't we? They put on the voice oh. and a bit, of a, a bit of a lean as well. Yep. Yeah. And children see right through that. They do. Yeah. They do. Even Coin, <laughs> who, who has not had a regular upbringing. But yeah, he does. He remodels the whole place and... And makes it his own. He takes over, you know, there's really no question that he's going to be in charge at any point. No one can really do anything about it. It's just that the couple of wizards that we've met are actively complicit in that. Yeah. Hmm. So we get Carding and Spelter who are both, well, Spelter who's the first one to say, maybe we should just let him be Arch-Chancellor. I do like that the the person advocating for a, a child to be head of the university is called Carding. Like... <laughs> Because he definitely doesn't even have a bit of a beard. He won't get away with it. No, he's 10. No. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but he could if he wanted. He's a sorcerer. I suppose he could, couldn't yeah. he? he? He could make himself older, presumably. Although, no, because isn't there that thing where the wizards oh, you go do back, change themselves? You try and then you go back. But um, yeah. none of the, the magic that they're doing works well on anything that is already inherently magical. And I think the intimation is that wizards are inherently magical. Yeah. So they can change someone else into a lizard or a frog or whatever, but they can't make themselves younger or fitter or or not presumably another wizard would be able to do that to you well i don't oh well see this is yeah that's interesting because if you can disintegrate another wizard or turn them into a lizard i mean the patrician's not a wizard but yeah or is he no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah they just they don't have any trouble blowing themselves up but it's just changing themselves that they yeah have problems with yeah i wonder if they could do it to each other they wouldn't though because they're wizards yeah, yeah. And they hate each other so much <laughs> or at least they they are uh, viciously, you know, competitive. Yeah. Yeah. Can I just say, in amongst all of the things he does, like he's killing people, he redoes the hall, the thing that disturbed me most on a weird level was him making the ank water clear and nice. Yeah. Because that, that to me, I was like, oh, he's really changed the underlying structure of ank Morport because it's, the water is now water. Like, yeah. It made me wonder what the rest of ank Morport was thinking, like was mm. what... What was the reaction to the entire populace when you can't run down the river anymore? Kind of, <laughs> you're trying to dispose of a body and yeah. you can still see it, <laughs> or you're like... just washing it, you know? Yeah. 
Yeah, I, oh, I think it's this book where you get the great footnote about how the denizens of Ankh-Morpork would tell you that it was clean because it's been through so many kidneys. It must yes, be clean. Yeah, right yeah. Um, yeah so it's, it's weird. I was wondering how you felt about that, Liz, because you are... I definitely wouldn't drink it. No, after it was purified. Yeah, because something's happened to it. Like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's not natural anymore. Yeah, it's like fluoride in the nose. <laughs> I'm more suspicious of the clean water than I am of the dirty water because at least you know what you're getting in theory. Mm. Like, you, It's what you expect. Yeah. To get back to Coin for a second, when he shows up, he's kind of a weird blank slate character mm. at this stage. Like he doesn't really have any personality. He's, if he's got any personality or trope about him, he's, he's the creepy kid character. You know, yeah, like like in the Omen or one of those films where there's like a little kid who's got ultimate terrible power, and it's that fear that what would a child do if they could do absolutely anything? Yeah. Uh, but then he doesn't do any of the things that you imagine a child would do because he's doing what his dad's spirit in the staff is telling him to do. So he's a weird. He's a bit of a weird. He's character. quite detached too, isn't it? Like we sort of like, oh yeah, that's interesting. Now I'll do some magic. Like it's not. Mm. Yeah, there's no element of playfulness to him. He's not enjoying any of it. No. Yeah. Well, he's a person who's done like three hours of piano lessons a day and he's also learned another language by the time he's five. Like he hasn't had time to sort of, he's like yeah, that yeah. kid. So he's yeah. like, oh, that's interesting. That fits in with my lessons. And now I'm going to apply this other lesson. He has the air mm. of someone who's just nonstop study, bed, go up, do your calisthenics and then. Don't the disappoint day. your parents. Yeah. And yeah. this is where they've put him on the stage to do the thing that yeah. he's been training to do. Mm. Yeah. And he's just like, well, I've got to just go through it, do all the things. Um gotta be an evil wizard now and and he he's nailing it mm. but it's his his heart's not in it and i think that's pretty clear but he doesn't show it he doesn't show no. that his heart's not in it so everyone's really scared of him which is yeah he's a really he's a really tragic figure coin all the way through i reckon like even the end even his ending is sad mm. and oh, lonely yeah. like yeah. yeah let's not get too sad we have the whole rest of the book to get through <laughs> uh but while all that's going on while he's taking over the university and reshaping it and taking charge of all the wizards um we meet one of our other major characters who has already been in the university because she's stolen the arch chancellor's hat mm. uh, at its own request <laughs> which i thought was rather nice um and that's Kanina, um who it doesn't she doesn't ever go by Kanina the barbarian but it's clearly yeah. where yeah. that's coming from she and she's the daughter of famous barbarian cohen the barbarian she's a bit of a mixed bag i think mm. Kanina. I couldn't quite nail down her motivations well. Like, I know that she wanted to not be a barbarian. She wanted to be a hairdresser, but she's also so good at being a barbarian mm. and also seems to, when she's doing that, love it as well. So I'm not sure what's the thing she's actually trying to convince herself of. Yeah, that's the same thing I felt with the end of the book where we've met Nigel the Destroyer and they obviously fall for each other and then he's like, you want to be... Mr. and Mrs. Destroyer, but which one are you going to be? And it's like that weird thing of like, here's this magnificent woman, but we've got a container. Mm. We've got a, we've got a, she's got to go back in her box. So I sort of felt it a bit frustrating that she, why can't she just be uh, an amazing barbarian, but now she's got to be a hairdresser. And at the end of it, she's, it's a little bit, I dream of Jeannie almost that kind yeah. of um, put yourself back in your defined role sort of. Yeah. And I hated her and Nigel as a thing. Like I just, anytime like they were intimating that, I'm like, no, stop it. Not because I wanted her to be with Rincewind. I was just kind of like, no, just let her go off and be herself. I don't want her to be with this drip. Yeah. It's like in the new version of Scooby-Doo where they have um, Velma fall in love with Shaggy. 
Mm. which is not right. Like they would never fall for each other. Like why Why would an incredibly competent, capable barbarian woman go for a guy wearing long woolen underwear that needs to be rescued all the time? Although maybe that's the role. Maybe she wants someone to rescue. Yeah. yeah. He is, he's kind of the nice guy archetype because he's got nothing oh, going for him yes. except he's a really nice and, – and he is genuinely a good guy. Sort of. But um, he's very – toward the end when he's just like bossing her around like with the ice giants and things, I was kind of like, don't mm, – don't. Yeah. Don't do that. Yeah, that was a bit weird. And Conina's she fits a, like an archetype that already exists in this kind of fiction that we're talking about, like the sort of sword and sorcery stuff that is the inspiration for this era of Discworld. You have characters like Red Sonja, who yeah. is, you know, the equivalent of Conan the Barbarian. And nobody tames Red Sonja. Like, she'll cut your head off as soon as look at you. And Conina is very much that. And it's interesting that she herself is the one who wants her to go back in the mm. box. Like... I, you ne- she never tells Nigel, and he never gets to see what she's, wh- who she really is. Mm. She hides it from him on instinct, you know, and she's nervous around him in a way that she's not around any of these other men that she meets. Who she's quite, you know, she'll just stab them and throw them over her shoulder. You know, she doesn't need them; they're not in any threat to her. And then as soon as she meets this guy, and she's a bit, oh, suddenly she's like, oh, she, he can't find out who my dad is yeah, or what yeah. I do. Like, I've got to, you know, what if he talks to me? Oh, and and it just felt like I get that it's played for laughs, but it just it did feel a bit yeah. weird. Yeah, and yeah, and I totally acknowledge that it was played for laughs, and it's the juxtaposition and everything, and a reversal and all that. But I was still like, oh, can't she just, can't she just do a thing? Yeah, I just guess it. Like my thought is, what's her relationship with Cohen the Barbarian like? Is it a weird parallel of that where she tries to be like his little girl when she's around him, and so like maybe because we don't see her around other barbarians. No, but then but then she does mention that he's taught her how to go through booby trapped mm. corridors and stuff. So presumably they've he, had a relationship, like they've he, had a yeah, and he's encouraging that side yeah. of her. Yeah, but not necessarily. It could be like here's how to protect yourself if you find yourself in a scenario because that's all he can impart. Yeah, right. So we don't know if he's gone. Okay, I'm going to train you to be a proper barbarian, or if it's like I must protect my 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 girl, my little yeah. So, like, I would really have loved to see what her relationship with her father was like to see if that's kind of why she was like that with Nigel. Maybe it's interesting, too, that she doesn't work as a traditional barbarian. Like, she's not going out and and just killing people and taking their stuff. She's become a master thief where she steals things without Mm. having to get into fights most of the time. And, of course, she has all of the tropes of the lady not wearing much clothing in a sorcery novel, you know. It's... Mm. But they they get they do get given a mission which um, Rincewind tries his best to get out of, <laughs> but no avail. Um, they have to take the Arch Chancellor's hat across the Circle Sea to Clutch, and we talked a little bit about Clutch in the Mort episode. In Mort, I think it gets used in kind of the same way that people say Africa, when really they mean a specific country yep. in Africa. And here, you know, we find out Clutch is a whole continent, and Al Kali is the place where they're going to go, which is clearly the sort of Arabian Nights, you know, place on the disc world, which again, it's felt a bit like Dungeons and Dragons because they you have all these different settings for your games to occur in in Dungeons and Dragons, and they made lots and lots of different settings for it that covered all the different tropes, and they had their Arabian Nights style one, which was called Al Qadim, and it, this this reminded me of that. It's like, oh, they've had their they've started off in their traditional fantasy city state, and now they're going to go and have their you know Arabian Nights style adventure across the sea. And also what I found interesting about this one was the way that there are three different – we're constantly crossing to three different settings. So mm. you kind of swap backwards and forwards. Like it's not as linear as some of the other books, I think. Yeah, mm. there's, a, there's a lot of parallel threads going on. Mm. 
because mm. it rarely has that many, I think, going on. Mm. There's usually like a, and he usually has kind of an A plot and a B plot. And here there's like an A plot and a B plot and sort of a C plot. And a D plot of like the four horsemen. Yeah. But like, yeah. Which oh, I did yeah. love. I yeah. loved that. Yeah. Oh, they're great. When they're there shot. never really was a reason. No, it was just great. <laughs> The hat tells them we've got to go to Clatch and Al Cully because that's where somebody who can wear me is. And I was like, oh, like a, a secret hero who can rise up and save the Discworld or, you know, like a, a, a wizard who's never been taught but has the greatest potential so they can match the sorcerer in power. And no, it's like a evil Grand Vizier because his brain is the most devious. Because um, the hat is maybe one of the true villains of the story too. Yeah, because as soon as it gets a person, it just goes, oh, not a hat anymore. Now I'm a really powerful wizard. Yeah, well, yeah. Because he got offended. I mean, I'm calling the hat a he, but um, because he got called a figure hat. And so he's yes. like, oh, well, I'm not going to be called a figure hat. I'm going to go become like this thing that can wreak mm. havoc on people. And, and you know, and like when the thief when when the thief steals the hat and is frozen and rinse when accidentally shatters him, like mm. like it's there's no compunction or worry i guess it's that thing of like if you are like a god then minor details are unimportant you know like you're kind of looking at the overview so you don't care about the little people it speaks in cliche villain talk too mm. this is when, when the thief gets shattered the hat says something like thus die all enemies of wizardry and you're like whoa okay there's evil overlord written all over this hat and the hat talks in italics like a villain in a in another book like the gun oh yeah i hadn't thought yeah. of that the objects of evil throughout the disc world yeah. speak could, in italics you could have a whole collection of them they're all creepy as yeah one of the horsemen speaks in italics too yeah which one Don't they? it's uh, pestilence speaks <laughs> in italics yeah. yeah i went back and reread the bits with the horsemen in it later because i thought for a while that you never heard famine speak and I thought that was maybe because he was always stuffing his mouth with the peanuts <laughs> from the bar. But no, he does he does speak. So, yeah, that's not a thing. But yeah, when they get to well, how do we feel about Al-Khali? Because it is, I mean, it, clear, it wears all of its influences on its sleeve. Like, yep. it's very much Arabian Nights. There's so many Aladdin references in it. It's ridiculous. Yep. And it feels fun. But they, there is also that thing where the characters keep talking about how, oh, this is where foreigners are. And this is like, you know, yep. this is different to at home. Which is it? Sometimes it gets close to being a bit on the nose there. I think. Yeah, and I also felt there was lots of references to uh, the bad stuff that was going to before Conina. There's lots of kind of veiled rape threats, kind of. Yeah. They're not rape threats, but you know, like there's that veiled thing of like, oh, you're going to get it, kind of yeah. thing, which it's just is not- of its time, I guess. But yeah, it was just kind of. Yeah, it's like. Yeah. Oh, I guess this is from a time when we all thought this was amusing. Like, yeah. Yeah, and they keep they keep making reference to the seraglio without ever saying what it is, and I was like, I'm not sure I remember what it is. I had to go and look it up. Yeah, <laughs> but then they try and make it cutesy because the serif's seraglio is just for having women tell him stories. Yeah, yeah. but then he's also using the language of a creepy old guy, but it's about narrative and not sex. Yeah, yeah. so it's still using that same gag. I said, gosh, I sound like a humorless old battle axe. But <laughs> no, but the way just... he treats it as well isn't. It's like a bad thing. So like, yeah, yeah. If his intention is that it's a bad thing, like, yeah. is the thing he's doing then bad based on his motivations? Like yeah, yeah. Like he's like he knows he's doing something creepy kind of thing. Yeah, because the way because the way he acts throughout it. But yes, yeah, it, yeah. it was still funny. It's just yeah. Yeah, I mean, because the other way to read that is like he knows he has an unusual kink and he's a bit nervous about talking about it, which is the probably more, it's a more charitable way yeah. to read it, I suppose. And then by the end of the book, he does find someone who's really into yeah. it. Yeah. Or who doesn't even know that they're like, sure, if that's what you like, oh, I could do that. Yeah. And he's mm. like, really? 
And yeah, I, I, he was a. I felt weird about him as a character because he's just so he's very hard to connect with. He he doesn't feel he's not very down to earth at all. Like he comes from massive riches. Yeah. Um, I love riches creosote. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and they don't say like where his riches come from is is from the lamp, but they don't say well. Did you just wish them into existence or did you wish yourself a whole fleet of slave ships and take slaves? Because that's a whole thing that happens in this book as well. They talk about slaves a lot. You're like, "Mm, yeah. Which, again, is a trope of that sort of Arabian Nights story. But nowadays you read it and you're like, would we write this story the same way now? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting stuff that you wouldn't even think of. But then rereading it as you go, yeah, that kind of stands out a little bit. I kind of love that he's like the embodiment of the girl from Pulp's Common People because he's trying to do a little with a lot. Like he's got so much money, but he wants to live like the common people. He doesn't really know what that is. So he's just living this luxurious life that he thinks is simple. But then as soon as it's all taken away from him, he just gets really sulky. Yeah. Because he sobers up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because that's... Yeah, because yeah, that's right. Because he spends most of his time drunk as well, hmm. um, and writing terrible poetry because he just does not have the capacity. They're all references to yes. like classical yeah, poetry yeah. of various sources. Yeah. It was like the Vogon poetry of classics. Yeah, <laughs> it's just horrible stuff. Yeah, so they meet the Sarif of Alkali. They get captured, brought to him, um, and they have already stolen the hat, which was taken by raiders who attacked the ship when they were sailing across the sea. And they have it, uh, but they don't really know what it is until Ritzwin kind of lets slip that it's very important, at which point the hat starts talking to the vizier and eventually convinces him to put it on. And I feel like that's at the point for me that the hat's like, oh, you're the bad guy because you don't care what's going to happen to this man. Like that's And Ritzwin is doing the thing against his own better judgment of going, don't do it. Yeah, the hat ends up no better than Coin and the wizards at the university who've all become... You know, bloodthirsty, wanting to control the whole world mm. behind him now that they have all this power that they didn't have before. And the hat does exactly the same thing. The sorcerer's wizards show up in Al-Kali and he defeats a few of them and then says, you can join me or die. And they become the two most powerful wizard towers that get mm. erected and start shooting at each other with like, you know, intercontinental ballistic magic missiles. In the most homicidal game of Monopoly. Yeah. <laughs> You put your hotel and then (laughs) (laughs) you put your wizard tower. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I also love the tower thing. It's like termites or something. Like they build, like where there are wizards, there'll be a tower that kind of. I saw it like a video game in my head where like there's like a map of the disc world and then like, you know, once you'd like accrued enough resources, suddenly this tower appears on Uh. the map and like just magic starts flying out of it at you. Yeah. On I, the topic of towers, though, I just found one of the saddest images of the book was like a sleepwalking Rincewind trying to make his own tower yes. on the beach. I was like, oh, you're going to do a terrible job. Yeah. And he's been through so much by that point because when they're stuck in Al-Khali, like he gets thrown in the snake pit, which is where he meets Nigel the Destroyer. Yeah. The, the, the snake um, pit with one snake. The snake pit with one <laughs> snake. Trying to avoid eye contact. Oh, and that, that bit where like they decide they're going to throw him, because first of all, they're going to throw him in the tank of spiders, but then the, the guard's like, We'll run out of spiders. <laughs> yeah, he's like, put him in the shark tank. He's like, no, it's only one shark. Yeah. And he's just eaten. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> or whatever the joke is. And yeah. it, it just, it feels like, a, again, it's a bit Monty Python-esque, but it's, mm, yeah. it's a lot of fun. But then, yeah, he meets Nigel. Um, and once all of the magic starts going, Rincewind does some magic by accident. Yeah, because um, there's so much magic around him, isn't it? Like he's kind mm. of tapped into the residual leftover magic. He literally says, look, it's a lot more complicated than pointing your finger and saying Kazam. But as he does that, <laughs> Kazam, like, you know, he melts the wall away. 
and something similar has happened to him sort of before in the books, but still it's a very unusual event for him to actually cast magic and he is sort of a bit flawed by it and doesn't really know how to react. And then he's been through having to convince them all to run away and realising the hat is such a villain. And then they're all, you know, just saying how awful wizards are and he's going, I'm a wizard. And there's because the, the tower scene is sad. The other scene that's sad is when he's like, what do you think's going to happen to me when everyone realises that wizards are evil? They're going to come after me. And Nigel's just like, you idiot, just take off your hat. No one will even know you're a wizard. And he's like, what? Yeah, sorry, I don't, I don't know what you mean. Yeah. What, what I can't, can't get my head around it. What? Yeah. yeah. And, I, and it's that, because it, this book more than any of the others, I think, just has that thing where he is so certain of his identity as a wizard. It's like mm. the one thing he has. And, he, and he, he talks about, there's a line where he says, you know, I had absolutely nothing and they took that away from me. <laughs> and it's it's so sad. It's such yeah. a weird, sad way to define a character, but it just gives you so much sympathy for him because yeah. I think we've all had a dream of something or we felt like in our soul somewhere we yeah. were something or we aspired to something, but we just didn't have the opportunity or the or the talent or whatever to to make it you know and we can all identify with that in yeah. one way or another but also i have that thing of like i hope i'm not one of those people that doesn't realize they're no good at what they do oh, mm. you know because you see those people that are really dedicated to their their passions and you like you just mm. you're no good but they just keep on i think that's i think that's a fear at the heart of all comedians yeah <laughs> we all have that fear don't we uh yeah, we were just like, do people really think my jokes are funny? And like, well, you'd always just go and get a real job, and you go, I can't, I can't. get a real I job. I have I'm a no comedian. skills. Yeah, that's what I do. I'm a thing. Yeah, I suppose being a wizard is like being in show business. Like the thought of not being in show business. I had friends that, or one friend that really wanted to be a park ranger, but he just couldn't get out of the entertainment industry because he felt it would be too much shame if he left the entertainment industry. It's like mm. no one cares. Just go be a park ranger. Like. But there's that kind of glamour of it, I suppose, that yeah. you go, but everyone wants to be a wizard. Yeah. Yeah, they've had to have sequins on it. Yeah. One of the other things that's weird in this book is you're never quite sure what purpose wizards serve outside yeah. of the university. Like in the university, it's very clear that the whole point they're there is to focus all their energy on like not really killing each other, but sort of slowly mm. advancing up the ladder. But at the same time, you know, when they're on the boat on the way to Al-Khali, the captain of the boat is like, we've got a wizard, so you can, like, create green fire in their bellies. Like, go on, incinerate them. And you're like, do any wizards on the Discworld do that normally? They can cast spells, but it's not clear that they actually go off and have adventures and zap people. Because yeah, yeah. you never meet any wizards like that. You meet people like Cutwell in Mort, who's really bad at magic as well, or the university wizards who are rather more in fond of big dinners than blowing things up. Well, be the stories probably trickling down from the great mage wars and things of what wizards used to be able to do. So mm. just probably the idea of old time wizards has seeped into like songs and stories and stuff. So people would just associate them with mm. that rather than this sort of tame group of brandy drinking, fire sitting guys just chill at yeah. a university. I suppose it's a little bit like the royal family, you know, like you, they're not terribly useful, but everyone adores them. Not everyone, but, you know, everyone adores them and when they come out, everyone's really excited. Yeah. Mm. Particularly they get excited when they have children. Yes. <laughs> or when they get engaged <laughs> to an actress. Yes. Oh, yeah. Mm. yeah that's true. Eventually, Rincewind and the others do manage to escape, partially with the help of, you know, his brief foray into magic spell casting and his new friend nigel the destroyer his new friend nigel the destroyer who arguably is not a help i mean no yeah i think all that he adds is a love interest yeah he's trying to learn to be a barbarian hero 
out of a book, which is just yeah. such a weird thing to do. But also, it, they, he refers to it as the manual, and this is yet another Dungeons and Dragons reference because, like, the books that you play used to play the game are you know the monster manual and the player's handbook. Right. And it feels like this is the equivalent on the Discworld written by an actual barbarian hero. <laughs> Here's how to be a barbarian and what powers you need to have. And it's even got, he mentions later, a wandering monster index in the back. And wandering monsters is a thing from Dungeons ah. & Dragons. Where if you go into a dungeon and you're looking for treasure, the dungeon master can roll on the table and a, just a random monster will show up for you to fight just to add a bit of extra excitement and danger. Yeah, so they, they managed to escape to the beach, but only by going through a whole series of death traps into the treasure room of the Sarif's palace, which I found this, this is real echoes of Men at Arms and the uh, the Fool's Guild. Yes, mm. yes. The funny annoyances and then the great block of stone yep. at the end with laugh this one off. <laughs> yeah, just like I'm going to lull you into a false yeah. sense of security. It's just silly traps. <laughs> now you're squashed. And I also love that Nigel was so light that he didn't set any of them off. Like I did love that as a gag that he got through them all because he his weight wasn't enough to trip the yeah is that traps. why right yeah because it doesn't describe him as looking like a toast rack yeah <laughs> yeah yeah he's not your typical barbarian material. It's not sure where he got the book from. Like he bought it. But I don't think Cohen sold it to him personally. No, no. I, I visualize it in my head as being like, you know, on the back of comics, you used to get those kind mm. of Charles Atlas, whatever, 98-pound weakling, in just seven days I can make you a man now and doing Rocky Horror. But, yeah, that kind of thing where you send away for the book to train yourself to be a muscular person, not a weakling. Yeah, yeah. definitely. But he's he's made a good fist of it. Like when he does the sword play later on, it's really impressive, apart yeah. from the fact where he lets go <laughs> and it ends up in the ceiling or whatever. How did he end up in the snake pit so quickly as well? Like, what has he been barbarianing? I don't know. Yeah, it's, I don't know. It's been three days and he's already in the snake pit. Like, he's done something. And he's clearly not from Al-Khali. Like, he's, yeah. he seems to be from yeah. somewhere closer to... Someone somewhere that requires him to wear woolen underwear, long mm. johns. You get it, Like, if you could... I mean, I don't know that he ever says, but you get the impression he's from somewhere like Lanka, like up in the Ramtop Mountains, mm. you know, the kind of place where Mort is from or where the witches live. Like, you know, and he's just decided, oh, I don't want to be green a grocery. Grocer. Yeah, I don't want to be a green grocer. Actually, well, he must be from a city if there's a green grocer. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Right, so, but who knows which one. Anyway, they manage to get through all those death traps and then they find the biggest Aladdin reference of them all. There's the magic lamp and the magic ring and a flying carpet. This predates the Disney Aladdin film by about four years. And the genie in this book has got a lot of stuff going on that's a little bit like the genie in Aladdin. Like, he's not as outrageous, but the idea of the magical creature that comes from some other realm is going to be connected to our world. Yes. Because he's, he's a yuppie from the 1980s. He's mm. got a cell phone. He's, he's, he's asking he's got other messages. He's got other properties, like he's got other lamps and stuff. Just talk to my people. We can have lunch next yeah, week. Yeah, yeah. I think does Nigel take it anyway? Is that? I think Nigel has it because yeah. then he has that whole thing about like how can we be in the lamp yeah. while it's in my yeah. pocket and we're also walking along. But and yeah. there's that whole thing about everything happening at the same time in the same place except the place is very big. Yeah, yeah. Anyway. yeah. And the beautiful line about the sound of the universe catching on. Yeah, don't talk about it too much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the weird teleportation thing. I also like the thing with the with the magic carpet and that it just turns out that they had it upside down the whole time. And they had to tell it to go down to go up. It reminded me of the, you know, like taking a hook turn. You know, yeah. You have, to, you, have to, you have to go left to go right. Yeah. You mm. have to go down to go up. Yeah. But also just go down and turn it over and sort it out and then just fly yeah. on the carpet the right way up. The hook turn is a traffic manoeuvre unique to Melbourne. 
So that cars don't impede trams, which run on tracks in the middle of the road, cars wishing to turn right must pull into a lane on the far left and wait for through traffic to get a red light before turning. It's as confusing as it sounds for drivers new to Melbourne, especially if they're from overseas and still getting used to the whole driving on the left thing. They escape on the flying carpet, which is cool, and they get to the beach. And that's where we have the sad scene of Rincewind building his own tower in Mm. his sleep. If you ever needed proof that he really is a wizard at Mm. heart, it's that he does that. And, you know, and he can channel the magic when it shows up. Like, he clearly is a wizard in some hard-to-define but essential way, even though he can't do any of the actual wizardry stuff. Yeah, but he sort of needs a signal booster, so he can... He do, he doesn't have the strength in himself, but yeah. if he's got something that can boost his signal, then he can do a little bit of magic. So he's like bad Wi-Fi. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he's an internet-enabled device that doesn't usually have access to the internet. He needs. He's, he's an iPad that doesn't he's have like 3G. He's like my yeah. iPad. You know, all the other wizards have got a 3G chip in them. But he's got an Ethernet cable. I guess a sorcerer has like a satellite uplink direct, like they don't even need a network. <laughs> <laughs> they just generate their own internet <laughs> signal. They annoy Rincewind so much, particularly Creosote, the Sarif, who just talks about how awful wizards are. Um, so they sort of turn around and realize there's like a Rincewind-shaped hole in the landscape, <laughs> which is a lovely turn of phrase. And he's gone. He's gone back to Ankh-Morpork by himself. And then you have that great moment where he's on the carpet and he's sort of going, maybe I shouldn't have done this. <laughs> We've established so clearly that Rincewind is a coward, but we'll do the right thing in the right circumstances. But he, he's not pushed to do the right thing at this point. He's sort of doing it because he's angry. He had mm. a petulance. So he always does the right thing for the worst possible reason. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and this is a part two, isn't it, where he goes back and talks to the librarian and the librarian threatens his hat. Mm. And yeah, we seems so mean. But then we get we get more absolute proof that he's a wizard because that's when Rincewind realizes that he's a wizard. Yeah. Because he's going to take the librarian on. Yeah, and this is also all part of the inspiration particle sequence. Oh, oh and I love that oh, so I much. I love that so much. Yeah, the dark have, and oh, it's just. Oh yeah, oh. you have the whole sequence there that explains that you know inspiration happens because of inspiration particles, but they have to fly so far. They don't always hit the right people. And people get hit by inspiration for things that is no use to them whatsoever. Mm, and what goes into the head of a small confused duck or hmm. a, a, was there a blue tip trying to um, tap things out on the top of a milk bottle? Yes. <laughs> and then a scientist that had some really interesting ideas of new bird feeders. Like, yes. it's just so good. There's, it makes me think of another great Terry Pratchett insight of how um, miracles don't have to be good. Like when something awful happens, it's still equally miraculous, but it's just awful. Yeah. Like, but and I, I think of that often when there's like a freak accident or something on the news. I'm like, oh yeah, that's a, that's a miracle, but it's a bad miracle. Which is pretty much the entire plot of the Final Destination movies, where a different death than the one we're used to gets almost ridiculously creative in claiming back the lives of the teens who have escaped his clutches. As with so much of the stuff that he writes. Um just something we can all identify with. It's like, oh, yeah. I just can't find the right words. I just don't have the right idea. And it feels like you just have to you just have to have that moment of inspiration. But he does have that moment of inspiration. And he, he first gets it on page 165 uh, where he says, talent just defines what you do. It doesn't define what you are. Deep down, I mean, when you know what you are, you can do anything. Which is probably the most profound thing that mm. Prince Wind ever says. And then he uses that again towards the end of the book when the librarian threatens his hat. I, I was affronted. I was like, <laughs> no, you can't do that. Like Everybody knows that's Rincewind's hat. You can't attack his hat. And, and this it, was right on the back of all these books being damaged. And I was like, oh, no, 
it's not okay that these books got hurt. Oh, and that yeah, because that's also mm. the scene, or just before that is the scene where when when Rincewind goes back to the library, Coin has sent some wizards to burn the library down because he can't use magic to destroy them because they're magical. But the librarian, after going all diehard, <laughs> like <laughs> jumping on the, from the roof, um, has already evacuated the books into the Tower of Art that features also Men at Arms. It's just, yeah, it's, I just... It's I, a really beautiful, sad description of what's happened, isn't it? Like talking about um, trilogies <laughs> mourning their third volume or something like that. Like yeah. real, that real, the idea of damaged cre- creatures, like, you know, like animals after a forest fire. It was that yeah. big war hospital sort of scene as well, like after a big battle and you see everyone sort of pulling together. It's, yeah, it's very upsetting. Yeah, and he's doing surgery on the book to repair it. That's what he wanted the hat for, in theory. Yeah, but then, no, he's just going to... Threatened to cut the star off. Yeah. Oh, that's horrible. Um, and of course, he, he eventually he loses his hat anyway. There's a shade of Indiana Jones there. You know, yeah. Because that's one of the last lines of the book is, you know, a wizard will always come back for their hat. But yeah, he convinces him to do something. And he needs to do something because by this time, not only have Coin and all the wizards at the university destroyed all the other wizards, including the ones in Al-Kali, who are led by the evil vizier wearing the the Arch-Chancellor's hat, who is defeated, by the way, because of the luggage. And we've forgotten forgot what the luggage has been up to during this time. Here's the thing we need to talk about, because I found this really strange, and we've alluded to it already, Rincewind's feelings for Kamina. I felt that it was just that trope of um, a man who hasn't been around women will just like the first woman mm. due yeah. to proximity. Yeah. But that the luggage echoes his feelings because presumably they have such a close psychic bond. Or maybe she's just so fantastic. Maybe mm. that's... Generally what it is, she's a bombshell barbarian. And that is who the luggage would go for as well because he's kind of like this tough luggage. Well, he does see her kill a lot of people and I think that's what (laughs) would win over the luggage. I say he. It, yeah. It's not. It's so weird, right? The luggage doesn't even have a face. You know, Rincewind has that awkward sort of conversation with it. It's like, you know, she's a woman and you're a... Well, you're made of wood. It wouldn't work. (laughs) (laughs) And there's the bit where she's sitting on it when she's admitting to Rincewind that the thieves have stolen the hat and she's sort of studying it and picking splinters off it. And you get the impression that also the luggage is enjoying that in some way, yeah. which is a bit weird. But she tells it to go away. She gives it a kick and says, you know, get out of here. And then you don't sort of hear about it for a while. And I, I felt like we kind of just sort of, it just got a, forgotten about until it shows up drinking. Yeah, <laughs> like sorrows. it's sulking elsewhere. But eventually it kind of gets past that. And this... Again, yet another Dungeons and Dragons part of the book is the luggage's adventures trying to find them after it's gotten drunk as it goes through the desert and it gets attacked by all these basilisk mm, and weird alligators monsters. and Dungeons and Dragons is full of weird monsters. Like the monster manual is part monsters from uh, fiction, part monsters from mythology and folklore, uh. and then part just weird stuff. A lot of which was made up because one of the original writers had these little plastic toys that he was using as miniatures in his game, so he just made them into monsters. This is like those mythological monsters just attacking it out in the desert. And eventually gets back to Al-Kali and distracts the um, hat-wearing vizier at just the wrong time so that he gets blown up by the magic from coin, which means that they are the the winning wizards on in the new Mage Wars, I guess. Sounds like a reality TV show. <laughs> Mage Wars. <laughs> The luggage is like the intruder who's dropped in in the seventh episode just to mix <laughs> yeah, things up yeah. a bit. <laughs> and that means there's only there's only coin in the those wizards left. He's he sort of goes, Now we rule the whole world and somebody, some idiot wizard, says, Well, except for the gods. And that's why he, when he goes, Well, no, we have to be better than everybody. 
So I guess I'm going to have to trap the gods with my amazing magic powers, which he does, and that's what triggers, and I love this phrase, the, the tea time of the gods. Oh, the tea time of the gods the, and the start of the apocalypse and the beautiful sequences with the four horsemen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Or the three horsemen, all the three pedestrians yeah. of the apocalypse. Yeah, one horseman and three pedestrians. <laughs> I had remembered war as being a woman, and then I realised that was from Good Omens, where she's a, she's female in that, but in this one, yeah, it's a dude. And there's no um, there's no pestilence in. Um, Maybe in they all the got world. fired because of this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can't even keep your horse. You can't have the job. You didn't make it to the apocalypse. You're just drinking. Yeah, well, I do like the idea that they're just we're just we're, it's it's coming, guys. So we'll just get together and we'll have a drink beforehand because I ha- we haven't seen each other for a while. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, well, the other ones seem a bit more human than death in their way. Like only one yeah. of them gets you know italicized speech. Well, they're all parts of life, aren't they? Like war, famine, pestilence. Whereas death is what's outside of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's he's like true. suppose like like having Christmas drinks with your boss. Like he's got to go so you can enjoy yourselves. Like mm. he's got to put his head in and go have a great Christmas, everyone. <laughs> hang around for a bit, and then he leaves, and then you can all relax. Because mm. that's where that's where the others end up. That's where um, Creosote and Kanina and Nigel end up, and and so they steal their horses. It's one of those narrative coincidences that you just don't question because it's too good. I think you, you don't question it because the rest of the book is clearly not based on reality. You know, yeah, like, well, that's true too. Yeah. It's just so bonkers. You're like, yeah, this is fine. Yeah, of course that would happen. And yeah, the tea time of the gods, the early books talk about the gods in a very different way to the later books do. There's a pantheon of them and they're they're very kind of Norse or Greek in their feel, even though they have, you know, unique names and weird sort of looks. And they're kind of a bit of a mishmash because you have Ofla, the crocodile yeah. god, and blind Io, who instead of being like Odin with just one eye missing, he's like, you've got no eyes except for a bunch of eyes that float around his head. <laughs> But they just get trapped in a little thing and then the ice giants come and that's so Norse mythology, except that they're riding these glaciers like bulls or something. Yep. And Nigel in his arrogance is like, I can talk talk to them, that's fine. And he's quite dismissive of Kanina through all that. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. This is when it all sort of falls apart for me where I'm like, I don't like that guy. Yeah. That part of it is a bit weird. Like those characters almost feel a bit superfluous. Mm. Yeah, And I think for me, this is one of the things where it felt more like the really early books than the later ones. And and one of those things we talked about before is it doesn't concentrate on the people. It throws a lot of characters and a lot of situations at mm. you in fairly rapid succession. You never really get to know any of them deeply. You don't understand their motivations very well. The only one you spend a lot of time with is Rincewind. And I think that's why he's quite sympathetic in this book because you just don't really care that much about anybody yeah. else. Also, they travel all over the place. We don't stay in one place. And there's no change that happens to that place. So like in a book yeah. like Men at Arms, it's about Ankh Morpork and the Watch. And by the end of it, both Ankh Morpork and the Watch have changed. And I guess in this one, like Ankh Morpork changes like with the river and things like that, but it's put back. Yeah, it just gets changed end, back. It just gets changed back. It's like a sitcom or a Star Trek mm. episode, you know, where everything's got to go back to the status quo at the end. The only person for whom things have significantly changed is Rincewind. Uh, obviously everyone who's died, but we hardly knew any of them, so yeah. it didn't really matter. <laughs> It's kind of the opposite of Men at Arms in a way where there's that one death that really has a lot of weight mm. because it's a character that you've grown to know and love over the course of the book. And then in this one, there's just people getting disintegrated left, yeah. right and centre and you just don't care. And then Rincewing gets like lost at the end and you, it's sad. Cause that, and that, that's the bit where we're getting to at this point. And so there's other characters who are doing this other thing and talking to the ice giants. It feels like they're just there so we can 
get a bit more of the ice giants mm. in and they can do their mock Viking accent, mm. yep. which is hilarious. But then it all comes down to Rincewind and his half brick in a sock. <laughs> when he's decided he's going to face Coin, he sits on the carpet and he's about to go and then he thinks about it for a second and he gets up and he sort of takes his sock off and <laughs> scrambles around for a brick. And then he's, he's like, right, now I'm ready. And he's a real child of Ankh-Morpork. that's how he knows how to fight is with whatever's at hand scrappily in the streets (laughs) Uh, and then he goes up to face him and this i felt this was more we talked in when we were talking about mort in the last episode we were talking about how the ending of that felt a bit like rushed yeah like there's this big battle between mort and death at the end it felt like it, it was a set piece that he wanted to happen rather than a natural conclusion of the narrative. Whereas this feels much more earned mm. In, mm. in a way. Because it's not even really a fight between Rincewind and Coin. No, and it's the I think it's the first time you see Coin being a boy. Like you see Coin having a child's response to there's a funny man with a brick in a sock. And where you see the, the father's cruelty again. Which Rincewind then uses, uses later. Yeah, yeah. And you know what happens to boys who are bad. Yeah. yeah that was, oh, that was harsh. Horrible. And obviously all of us went, oh. This poor child's like the last 10 years of his life. Yeah. yeah, he's just been manipulated into becoming this magical force to enact his father's revenge for something that he has no part in and doesn't care about. And there's that great bit when Rincewind finally comes to confront him where it says he'd heard much about, you know, how the, the power of the sorcerer and the, the evil of the sorcerer. No one had mentioned the age of the sorcerer. <laughs> Like, yeah, that's uh, kind of an important detail. But I really liked how that confrontation plays out. Mm. Yeah. And one of the things that cemented for me was what Rincewind looks like because when Coin reacts that way, I'm like, oh, now I'm really imagining what Rincewind must look like, like really daggy and he's got a crappy robe and a crappy hat and he looks a bit sad and ridiculous as opposed to all the other wizards who look kind of pompous and important and ridiculous. Because they've got all new clothes with all their new magic. Yeah, yeah. Um, And I also loved the detail of wizards being able to see death. So he gets to see death before death turns up for him. Like, But he's always assuming that death is turning up for him. Yeah. Mm. The confrontation on the tower, I feel, sums up a lot of things about Terry Pratchett. And as much as the rest of this book feels more like the early ones, what happens to resolve this story feels so Pratchett. Mm. You know, Rincewind doesn't get up there and just say, you're doing the wrong thing. He's just like, this isn't really what you want. You've got to be true to who you are. And that's his attitude from the you know inspiration that he's been hit mm. with earlier. And even that is not really what gets through to Coin. It's just that he looks funny. That triggers Coin's sort of anger and resentment and also, you know, his defiance of his father, which is a hard thing to do when you're, you know, 10 years old. And your dad's a magical star. <laughs> yeah, that makes it even more difficult, I imagine. I don't have personal experience with that. <laughs> it's a nice moment. So it's got that humanness in it. It's got that ordinary person doing something courageous. Yeah. And the climax of the book, it feels really climactic. And it escalates because, you know, it's he he's like, no, I don't want to do what you're saying. The staff is mean to him. And then he fights back against the staff and tries to throw it away and it comes back. And then they, they start having a real magic fight between the two of them, which is drawing all of the magic mm. that has been summoned into the world by coin since he's been here hastening the end of the world because we've had we've had the the gods taken away so that the ice giants are freed and they're going to destroy the world but also as part of the prophecy of the apocalypse there's going to be a, a hole opened into the dungeon dimensions and the things will come out and consume what's left and this magical business is what's going to do it Rincewind's like telling the other we've got to help him like he helped you and there's that great line one of the wizards says yeah we may never forgive him for that <laughs> as they all start to realize a little bit what they've done and mm. how far it's gone and they all run away, and then it's left to Rincewind to do something. 
And it's just, yeah, he's in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's such a really evocative image of him waking up in the dungeon dimensions and being able to see the, like, the split into reality. I, I don't know, I just I could picture it so clearly. It's yeah. such a horrifying image of being in the dark and knowing that there are things between you and the light and that if you do the right thing, you're just going to be in there. Forever. And it's yeah. described as like a weird black beach, isn't it? Yeah. And that's really quite an evocative image Yeah, with too. the sand and the... And it's just been a real book of beaches as well. Like mm. all the climactic points sort of happen on beaches, which is interesting. Yeah. yeah. Beach at the start, you've got the beach uh, in Al-Khali and you've got the beach here. Yeah. yeah. But it's, yeah, there's some magic explosion sticks them into there. And this is where he makes his big decision. He's like, Coin, you've got to go back into the regular universe You can't use any magic to defeat these creatures because it will make them stronger. I'm going to have to distract them so you can go back and free the gods to avert the apocalypse. And all he's got is his half brick in a sock. And he does it. There's a few moments in the book where you see Rincewind's pride come through. He doesn't have much, but he's proud of what he is, even though he's terrible at it. And this is one of those moments where he's like, you know, maybe tell people that I stayed behind. You know, they don't have to build a statue. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> ah, I was I was surprised how affecting it was even mm. though I knew that's where it was going I knew what would happen in the end mm. and then and, and turning coin away with the you know what happens to boys oh, who are yeah. bad you know like the, the, that to make him go the necessary oh. evil sort of coin figures that out like he doesn't he doesn't go oh, I hate you he yeah. sort of it has the effect it needs to have but then as soon as he gets out of the dungeon dimensions back into the real world. He's turning around and he's like, we've got to get Rincewind out. And yep. the librarian's like, no, 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 you're not going back in there. You've got important stuff to do here. And just shrugs. The librarian doesn't seem very sad about Rincewind. Well, he's I've... not working on a human plane anymore. Yeah, but I also feel like the librarian's a little bit more zen about everything and kind of figures everything will work out. And then, like, you know, the fact that he takes the marble with the gods in it and throws it far away. Like, it's like the librarian, I feel, has an overview of things. The librarian wouldn't have been booted out of the, the genie lamp. He wouldn't have thought too deeply into it. No. No. <laughs> That's true. But he probably he might not have come back. He might have just like gone, oh, there's probably bananas growing around yeah. here. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and that's that's the big that's the big climax. And although the the last thing that happens before we get to the sort of you know epilogue part is at the very last possible minute, the luggage turns up to jump into the hole into the dungeon dimensions to follow Rincewind, which is just a beautiful touch. It is because because I immediately go, well, he's going to be fine. Those poor things don't know what they're in for. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then that's that's kind of it, really. Everything goes back to normal because coin just undoes all of the magic stuff nigel and kanina come looking for him and he just makes them forget so they can go off and live happily ever after which is ethically dubious um <laughs> you know and he says something like oh it's just a little bit of magic <laughs> then and he goes off into his own world yeah he just realizes i, I can't this is not a world for me i've got to go somewhere so sad mm. a little 10 year old boy by himself mm. i hope i just hope he can make friends like literally yeah Create some yeah. out of nothing. World. He'd probably yeah. quite like to be alone for a while after he constantly yeah, process everything, <laughs> and also constantly heckled by the staff for his whole yeah. life. Oh so yeah, just a bit of quiet probably would do him some good. Yeah. He's got some processing to do. Yeah, brings us to the end. It's a bit of a journey, but again, you know, that's something that's like those first books, those early books, is that it is a journey. It's an adventure. We travel to all these different places, see all this weird stuff, and it's part of Pratchett's world building. And it's nice the way, you know, it closes up with everything going back to normal, like the gargoyles climbing up the side of the building and everyone coming back to roost. And then the hat that's mm. like the talisman. Well, not to give the game away, but we, we know there are more Rincewind books after this. So <gasps> what? I know. <laughs> what? We won't talk too much about them. Hmm. 
But that's that's sorcery. It occupies a really kind of weird space in the history of Discworld books. Like, it's only the fifth one. You know, it's reusing character that's been previously established earlier. And it does a lot of stuff that then kind of is erased, not just by that, what happens within the book, but the whole nature of wizards and who the wizards mm. are is kind of just changed considerably by the time we meet them again in moving pictures it feels very gag heavy as well it feels like when i started rereading again last night i was like oh yeah god there's just so many jokes in it do we want to talk about some of our favorite jokes oh, i've got a favorite one so it's when rintwind is in the tavern near the beginning and a black hooded figure comes and sits opposite him all furtively and just goes Psst, it said not very said rintwind who was in a state of mind where he couldn't resist it but i'm working on it it's just so good <laughs> yeah yep. so good there's a moment there where I want to mention a thing called the annotated Pratchett file. So back before there were websites properly, we used to write documents about things and then post them on newsgroups. And one of the big ones for Pratchett fandom was the APF, the annotated Pratchett file, which was this document where they'd go through the novels and like sort of explain what different references were. And one of the big reasons this came about was when he started to get popular in the US. And a lot of Americans reading the books did not get a lot of the UK references. Huh. And like, this is one of them because they don't say pissed to mean drunk in America. Oh, yeah, they mean angry. They didn't get it, you know. And so that's that's one that's written in the annotated Pratchett file. And if you're reading any of the books along with the podcast, listeners, definitely get onto it um, if there's any references you don't oh, I'm understand. I'm going to get onto that mm. as well. It's hosted on a website now. You don't have to go to a news group, which is just as well because that's basically impossible these days. It's called the L-Space Web. I love the ones that show the immaturity of wizards, like that they're all kind of adolescent boys, really. There's just a line, <laughs> they're talking about coin and, and the eighth son of an eighth son, and Spelter was thinking, eight sons? That means he did it eight times, <laughs> at least. Gosh. <laughs> yeah. I really like the bit where they're explaining what's going to happen to Rincewind when, if the slavers get a hold of him. And they're looking <laughs> at him and he says, so you could be just the man the Sarif needs for a job in the harem. A couple of slavers sniggered. It could be a unique opportunity, <laughs> the leader went on, encouraged by his audience appreciation. And then he, Ridswin says, I don't think so. Thanks all the same. I'm not cut out for that kind of thing. <laughs> oh, but you could be. <laughs> and, then, and then later on, and I like that also because Ridswin doesn't get it immediately, but later on he's like, oh, right. Mm. Uh, oh, dear. Yeah, I thought that was quite good. It was very good. Oh, it was really good metaphor later on when he's talking about alternate universes and when people make different decisions you might go into a different timeline and he talks about the trousers of time that, that's not in this book but i was reminded of it he says uh, the truth isn't easily pinned to a page in the bathtub of history the truth is harder to hold than the soap and much more difficult to find <laughs> well that was quite lovely um there's a great description of um the grand vizier ibram laughing um, Abram laughed. It wasn't a nice sound. It sounded as though he had had laughter explained to him, probably slowly and repeatedly, but had never heard anyone actually do it. <laughs> yeah. And hearing that made me forget how to laugh. I was like, am I doing it right? <laughs> and I really love the scene where the luggage goes into the bar to drink and everyone there is trying to, they're not sure if they're really seeing it and they don't want to be the first one to mention seeing this luggage walking on legs. Finally, one of them said, I think it wants a drink. There was a long silence, and then one of the others said, with the precision of a chess grandmaster making a killing move, what does? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Traditionally, we like to pick our favourite footnote from the book. So mine's about the layout of the, the library. The layout of the Library of Unseen University was a topographical nightmare, and the sheer presence of so many stored magic twisting dimensions and gravity into the kind of spaghetti that would make MC Escher go for a good lie down, or possibly sideways. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, how about you, Cal? Um, it's about the study of genetics. 
The study of genetics on the disc had failed at an early stage when wizards tried the experimental crossing of such well-known subjects as fruit flies and sweet peas. Unfortunately, they didn't quite grasp the fundamentals and the resultant offspring, a sort of green bean thing that buzzed, led a sad short life before being eaten by a passing spider. Oh, that's sad. Actually, I've got to ask you a question about this. When you're rereading these, you're reading them on your iPad. Yep. How do they represent the footnote? Do they do them in the normal way at the bottom of the page? No, so what they do is they've got the the number and then you just press on the number and the number takes you to the footnotes at the back of the book. And then you press on the number again and it takes you back. Does that alter your experience of them? I don't think so because I've read them before. And the only reason I'm doing it on the iPad is because uh, I had to read it late last night and I didn't want to have the light on and keep my husband awake so I read it on the iPad because it's got its own light source like I read lots of books on my iPad but I still really love reading Terry Pratchett in the physical form yeah because mm. I always liked that you know the footnote was down there yeah. and you could see it was there and also love a footnote that has a footnote like I've I love oh, yeah a footnoted footnote or a footnote that carries on across a page you know oh, just yeah. when the footnote is referenced as though it was part of the main text yeah. like a few pages later my favorite one is really short so I have to read the sentence that it's a footnote for as well After years of wrangling, the whole thing was then turned over to Lightin Weedle, arguably the disc's greatest philosopher. Footnote, he always argued that he was. (laughs) I just think that's so good. Um, And I love the way the footnotes give it a kind of conversational feel. Mm. Like it's it's like whispering out the side of his mouth to tell you a little bit of extra. There's just so much story that can't be crammed into the narrative. It's just spilling over the edges, which is lovely. Well, we've also had some people ask us some questions, which we should get to. Yeah, so many good ones. So we've just been able to choose a few of them. So the first one comes from Steve Mills, and he says, do you think there are any similarities between Unseen University, as it is portrayed in Sorcery, and Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry? For example, the Archchancellor's hat and the Sorting Hat. And would you rather be a student at Hogwarts or Unseen University? Definitely, yes. For starters, geographically, because there are points in this book where they talk about how the geography of the library in particular, but also the rest of the university, because it's so suffused with magic, is not fixed it moves oh, around. Yeah. So it's like the moving staircases and stuff yes. in Hogwarts. So I thought that was quite similar. It's not It's not something I've ever thought of reading Harry Potter, but rereading this now. I'm like, oh, yeah, the Chancellor's hat and the sorting hat. Like, they're probably cousins. Like, yeah. <laughs> Cut um, from the same cloth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that said, I would want to go to Hogwarts because they let girls in. Mm. And it doesn't seem to be run by such rampant egos as the university maybe well it's like the equivalent of a high school yeah it's not quite the same you could do one and then do the other yeah yeah maybe you could go to hogwarts and then once you've graduated there you go and do tertiary studies at unseen university (laughs) but it's weird isn't it because it's a different vision of how that education could work in magic like the idea is that once you've had a high school level education in magic where you can do everything so you don't need any more education because there's no there aren't any universities in the wizarding world are there People just go on to have jobs in the ministry yeah. and stuff, don't they? Yeah, I think you learn on the job. Or you go into a training program or an apprenticeship. Yeah. yeah. Whereas on the disc, the Unseen University is definitely a university. They're, mm. they're all young adult students. And whenever you hear about the students in later books, they're all at least in their 20s. We've got another good question from Jodie McGregor, which is, can you tell the wizards apart or do most of them blend into a homogenous hairy mass like they do in my imagination? So... Yes, they're a homogenous mass for me, yeah. pretty much. Yeah, there were one or two who I was like, oh, you seem interesting. I hope you come back later. And uh, But it slowly dawned on me that I didn't recognise any of the names, so clearly they don't yeah. come back. Some of them have similar titles. Like, well, like the bursa, when I started reading this again, I was like, oh, is it the dried frog pills bursa? But it's not. No, clearly not. And, yeah. and then... Um, it's the McConaughey bursa. It's the McConaughey bursa. <laughs> 
there's the the lecturer in law, who reminded mm. me a bit of you know ancient runes or the the, oh, the yes. lecturer in runes from later on. But he he's the one who comes out and says you can't do this. It's against the rules of magic, and he seems like the most sensible one for do a we, while. Uh, do you mean it's against the law? <laughs> That's what he says. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he should be the one riding a horse, clearly. He, he's got a cool name. And then, you know, he's got yeah. two scenes. He's got that one scene where he says, we shouldn't do this. And they're like, we have to do this. He's more powerful than us. And then at the end, he's the one who kind of explains, no, this is going to rip a hole into the dungeon dimensions. And that's about it. Like, yeah, they're not very distinctive. No, later on, I feel like they're, they're much more distinct. Well, you get the cast of characters who are kind of assembled in, I think, I think moving pictures the first time we meet most of them. And then they kind of stay the same there yeah. on, and, and they he builds on those characterizations, and they they're kind of more archetypes, and they're not there's not as many of them that mm. are significant, but we get to know them a lot better. Yeah, and we've got one from Murphy Peoples, which is, I recently realised I'd always pictured the luggage walking the wrong orientation. I'd imagine legs facing forward along the long sides, but then realised the lock is probably the face. How do you all imagine it? Yeah, I'd imagine it with the lock as the the mouth opening, and and the wide part to the front. Yeah, I always imagine it walking sideways, so to speak. And I think that's partly because that's how, I mean, you look at all the illustrations that Josh Kirby does and that's how he draws it, sort of. I mean, well, you can't really tell because in his drawings, the feet all face outwards. (laughs) So it's really not clear which is the front. But I always imagined it would walk along sideways because otherwise it'd be a very wide and not very deep creature, which seemed very weird. But then I never really felt that it had a face. Um, but absolutely would open along a hinge. Yeah. So what you're saying is is right. That, yeah. that mouth would face the front for me. But also I don't visualise its feet as being humany feet. No. Yeah, that's weird, isn't it? Because he always draws that with those little weird... Yeah. But like everything's very feet. fleshy. Everything's very fleshy in his photo, in his pictures, photographs. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I feel, yeah, like I, I have totally rejected that image of its feet. Well, you know the wheelie bags you get that can wheel in all directions. Like it doesn't have yeah. to be just one orientation. I sort of imagine the luggage could move in whichever direction, but I'd picture him walking sideways more often than not and just kind of like looking to one side because mm. it's more efficient to travel with the, the narrow end forward. Yeah, that makes sense. But like a crab. A... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of pictures where, yeah, that's clearly, and it's got a tongue and things. Um, I don't imagine it having a tongue. I don't imagine it. I just imagine it being a trunk. I think there's, well, the tongue doesn't, I don't think it's ever described that the tongue sticks out, but I do think there is a tongue described at one point when this... it eats someone. This, Not in this book. This is back to Harry Potter again. There's that um, magical trunk where um, Mad-Eye Moody is mm. trapped in the trunk and it's kind of like whatever you need from the trunk, you go, you open it to that. It's different locks. Compartment, yeah, yeah. And oh, I sort of yeah. feel that's a little bit like this, like you can open it and it's got your laundry or you can open it and it's got weaponry or the, the last people at eight or whatever. Yeah, although that's entirely, it's more or less entirely at the whim of, of the luggage. The luggage, yeah. yeah. You don't get to choose. It also makes me imagine that scene from Beauty and the Beast, like the big battle scene where the villagers all come up to lynch the beast and all of the magical cupboards and things are there to fight them. And there's the wardrobe we've all grown to love who's like helps her choose dresses and things, but this time it's fighting and then it traps someone inside. And like I sort of got parallels. But they're probably cousins too. So. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they have a lot of cousins across the multiverse, these <laughs> creatures and devices, yeah. All right, so I've got a question from Michael Hall, which is, how do you think Mushroom Ridcully was able to rein in the wizard's more murderous proclivities? I, I was reading about this. There's a theory that the wizards do remember what they did, like coin doesn't wipe anybody's memory, any of the wizards' oh, yeah, memories. Yeah. And the idea is that they all feel kind of a bit guilty about what happened. And I think that, that kind of works, but at the same time, 
none of the wizards who were there are ever mentioned again. Mm. So it's like the ones that we meet later on get a real free pass because we never see them being involved in this. And Red Cully himself is described as being like away at his aunt's funeral or something while this is all happening. But he was a lot younger as well. It's mm. another one of those instances where quite a bit of time passes on the disc world, but you're never really sure how much at what point. I don't know. I think that might be part of it, but I don't think it entirely, yeah. But didn't he just kind of intimidate everybody by being brash and loud and sporty and kind mm. of, I forget, like they want to, as little to do with him as possible. So they're just going <laughs> to behave themselves and not stand out. It'll be interesting when we get up to the moving pictures where he shows up for the first time to see how that's described. Yeah. Because it is such a shift between the way the wizards were and the way they become. And he's the he's the fulcrum for that shift. Yeah. Hmm. There's always that slightly uneasy feeling that he's like the jock among nerds. Yes, <laughs> totally. But he's not really a jock among nerds. He's more like the sports, like the elderly sports master at a private school. Yeah. You know, who everyone's a bit afraid of. But really is kind of genial and well intentioned. Yeah. Like the chariots of fire, like you think he's going to make you do a gentle run around the campus. So we've probably got time for one more question. Um, This one's from Darren Luchner. He says he's still reading sorcery, so I have a general question. If we could have had another Discworld book, which characters would you want it about? So for me, just the guards or Moist von Lipwig. It does feel like there might have been one more in Moist. Definitely. Yeah. But reading this again, I was like, oh, I want to see the luggage again. But I always loved the witches. Like I love Granny Weatherwax and Nanny Og and I loved that world as well. So I would like to see the younger witches coming up a bit more, a bit more. And also I just loved Nanny Og as well. Like, oh, oh they were all so great. They're all just such brilliant. It's really hard to say. I think if we, if you could get one more, I would want it to be the big crossover book that never happened. Like, not that I think he ever had <gasps> yeah, plans for yeah. it. But, you know, the, the witches as a group almost never really meet and interact with the other groups and like you know and that's true of all of them they have little minor interactions but they're never a big part in each other's plots you know like the wizards are there at Vimes's wedding but they don't really have anything else to do with mm. the plot of men at arms and but if you had one where they all kind of met up like there was a similar kind of apocalypse level event yeah because you got to wonder what were the witches up to during this whole yeah. scenario didn't rid cully go out with one of them wasn't there a romance between him and I think it's Granny Weatherwax. Granny Weatherwax, and they yeah. Don't, and it was when they were both much younger and they don't talk about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. There's those little links that are there and it would be interesting to see. I mean, it might be too much and probably he never did it yeah. because he never came up with a story that it really worked for. But if you could think of one. Like one of those Babysitter's Club specials where each chapter is told from the perspective <laughs> of like a different member of the club and they're all on like a cruise to Disney World, Florida. Or even another one about death. I think yeah. that's actually, yeah, that's what I was just thinking yeah. because – that's the series that finished, or he hasn't written another one of for quite a long time. So it's been a long time since there was a book that mm. really death was the main character. And I think, I think, yeah, if I had to pick one, I think that would be it for me. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think that brings us to the end of the episode. Cal, as we record, it is December 2017, yes. and you have a show coming up I in do. the 2018 Melbourne I International do. Comedy Festival. Yes, um, I'm also at the Buskers Festival in Christchurch at the end of January. I'm in Adelaide at some point during March, and I'm at Brisbane and Sydney and Melbourne. The show is called Hindsight. If you Google Cal Wilson Hindsight, you'll probably find it. I'm very excited about the poster. I hope the show matches up. Oh, I can't wait to see the poster and the show. If you're listening to this... In the future, mm-hmm. just look up Cal Wilson on the internet. Yep, on Twitter at Calbo, C-A-L-B-O. Because you'll be, you'll be doing a show of some sort at some yes, point. Mm. forever. Yeah, but if you are listening to this contemporaneously, go and see Hindsight, the festival. I certainly will. It sounds like it's going to be great. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me again. 
It's been great. Um, we should tell people what we're going to be reading next time. It's going to be Weird Sisters. <sighs> um, and we're very excited. We're going to have Ellie Squire on as our guest. Oh, cool. Who you, who, listeners, you may know better uh, as her alter ego, Clara Cupcakes. Very excited to have her on the show. She's going to be great. So that's going to be a lot of fun. And until then, uh, we will try not to vanish into a universe of our own making. You've been listening to Pratchett, the monthly Terry Pratchett Book Club podcast hosted by Elizabeth Flux and me, Ben McKenzie. This month's guest Pratchatter was Cal Wilson. Pratchat is produced and edited by me, with music and sound effects by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. We'd love to hear from you, so get in touch with us on Twitter at Pratchat Podcast, or on Instagram at Pratchat Podcast, or on our website at pratchatpodcast.com. Pratchat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit splendidchaps.com.